Hi, my name is Tom Johnson, and today you're listening to a presentation that Greg Koberger gave to the Silicon Valley STC chapter in Santa Clara, California on January 12, 2015. Greg is the founder of Readme.io, which is a new online tool for doing developer documentation specifically around API documentation. It makes it really easy. It's a slick new interface. It's just come out about three months ago. I saw Greg present at Write the Docs uh, a little while ago, and he uh, he seemed like a person who is definitely somebody that um, I wanted to know better and that would be of high interest to the TechCom community. Um, he's a forward-thinking person. Uh, in this presentation, he's talking about passive versus reactive documentation and um, and then later on after the presentation he gives a demo of his readme io tool that he's been developing he's his background is a he's a developer and a designer so he does uh, amazing designs and codes uh, the actual programming logic um, he's worked for mozilla graylock and numerous startups his readme.io company is a startup that's funded uh, and he's um, working aggressively to to develop out this solution with more features and all kinds of um, enhancements. All right, the presentation's about an hour plus a lot of Q and A uh, because it's a recording of a chapter event. Some of the questions may not always uh, record well, but his responses are good. I hope you enjoy. If you have feedback, uh, leave it as a comment on the post. If you want to learn more about the STC chapter, check out stc-siliconvalley.org. Thanks. Perfect. Thanks, Dave. Um, thanks, Tom, for inviting me. Um, so yes, uh, the basic premise of my talk is kind of dynamic documentation or something around there. Um, and I'll talk a little more about what that is in a second, um, but just to introduce myself, um, like, oh, hold on, there we go. Um, so my name's Greg, uh, I am uh, kind of got a technical writing, I'm not a technical writer whatsoever, I'm a developer, um, but I'm kind of inching into that space because uh, having worked at a bunch of startups, um, this is my startup, read me, having worked at a bunch of startups, um, same thing kind of happening. Uh, when I was consuming APIs or code libraries or when I was building them, the documentation was just bad. And I'm sure you guys all know kind of how that works. Uh, bigger companies uh, have invested in technical writers and stuff like that. But for some reason, startups just really haven't gotten on board with um, kind of actually doing good job documenting. Um, and I kind of found that when I was using a new API or a new code library from like a smaller startup, it would take hours to figure out because the documentation was horrible um, and just just was not good. Um, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else because I would build an API, build something like that, and then I would not document it um, or I do a really poor job of it. Just because as a developer, my kind of head my, my head was in that space and um, didn't really think too much about documentation. And the only other thing is Albert. He's a little owl that's going to keep <laughs> popping up all over. Um, so he will be in all my slides, making documentation seem a little more friendly. Um, not that you guys are afraid of documentation, but people tend to be. So threw a little owl all over. Um, and the only other person is Gabe in the back. Um, so Gabe is my co-founder. Uh, so um, yeah, that's that's kind of the introductions. Couldn't you use the talking paper clip? <laughs> I. 
Turns out that was taken already, but uh, <laughs> I promise. I promise. Albert's not nearly as bad as uh, as uh, Clippy. Um, but yeah. So kind of this is like uh, a kind of a developer's approach to this. Um, and don't kill me. Uh, I kind of like started and got into this tech writing world without even knowing like what like Dita is or anything like that. And like this has kind of been a huge learning experience for me. Um, and learning that sometimes I learned that I've been reinventing the wheel. Sometimes I looked at stuff and been like. I think I can do it better. Um, so it's kind of been like an interesting kind of experience to start learning more about technical writing. So um, one thing about this talk is that uh, it's kind of more of an outline. Um, if you guys have any questions or like have suggestions or anything, just feel free to yell out and interrupt me and we can go uh, whichever way because I, this is so cliche, but I want to learn from you guys probably more than you want to learn from me. Um, so well, hopefully you guys learn more from me than, hopefully you guys learn enough from me, but uh, we'll see. So um, I've kind of thought a lot about uh, documentation. I think there's kind of three levels that I've arbitrarily come up with. Um, the first is what I'm calling passive. And I think the best way to kind of break down what passive documentation is to me is if you look at, go to any bookstore and go to the computer section, you know, there's thousands of books um, about, uh, you know, anything uh, as far as computers go. Um, and it doesn't know anything about the person reading it. Meaning that I think most documentation online, you could actually print out and put in a Riley book or whatever and hand it out and it would, you know, you'd hand the same book to everyone. Which is uh, really weird because we're at the point where we know a ton about the people using the API, we know a ton about a lot of different things, and documentation should start to conform, I think, to the end user. So rather than just showing text meant for everyone, we can actually kind of like not show everything and only show stuff that matters to the person consuming it. So that's what kind of reactive documentation comes in. Um, it kind of responds to something the user does or says. Um, it's a little more interactive. And then the third level is proactive, which means that it actually goes out of its way to push information to the user, as opposed to just kind of like having to be read. Um, and I'll get to all these in a second and give you more like details and uh, things. But that's kind of the outline of like the, the three categories. So back to passive. Um, so like I said, passive documentation is kind of what most documentation is. It's very static. Um, I was talking to like Tom and stuff about how a lot of documentation is um, put, is done with like stack site generators, and that's fine, but it means that it's not personalized um, to the end user. Um, so to kind of take a step back, this is kind of my understanding of what documentation is split up into. And I'm sure all of you have uh, lots of thoughts on this. But I've kind of been splitting it up into three different types. Topical guides, which is kind of uh, why you'd use it, the mentality, the feeling. It's usually a longer read. Um, and there's some really good places that have done a really good job of that. But um, not everyone does that. Uh, tutorials is very step-by-step. -step. Here's what you do, one, two, three. And reference is kind of a deeper dive, which is more like handing something a dictionary. Um, most, so I'm coming from a slightly different world than you guys, I think, which is more startups. And startups tend to do reference really good. And a reference would basically be, here's an endpoint, here's you know, the parameters you use, here's what you get back. Or here's a function, here's the parameters you use, here's what you get back. And I think most people kind of do, in startups, do reference. And I think you guys know the importance of the first two, and I'm trying to kind of make it easier to do all three and have them work well together. Um, so like I said, the problem with reference is like handing someone a dictionary and saying, learn English. Uh, it's not the best way to learn, but it's also important to have, just it shouldn't be the first thing people see. Um, but I think there's also a huge thing that most uh, docs miss out on, and that's community. Um, so that means kind of a question and answer support section, 
um, a big thing that we have at README, um, and I'm going to try not to talk too much about README, but um, it'll come up. But we have something like collaborative editing, editing where anyone can hit suggest and edit, make changes, hit submit. And it doesn't show up on the site right away, but whomever is running it can you know, suck it in or reject it or change the docs based on that. Um, and that is very kind of like the first level of getting towards this more collaborative, uh, not just completely something you could print out documentation, because it kind of grows. And as the documentation changes or as people get stuck, they can actually suggest edits and things like that. Um, of course, the downside of that, as I'm sure you guys are all imagining, is that it's very easy for a lot of people to make random changes and there's no cohesion. And you do still need someone to kind of step in there and write the docs originally. The collaborative editing is more for you know, changing something that may be wrong, fixing a typo, maybe just adding a little paragraph here or there. But there still needs to be someone who's kind of the, the mastermind behind things. Um, so this is kind of like what I'm calling like level 1.5, which is passive-ish. Um, and that's the community. Um, so I kind of have two examples. The first, the question is like, uh, how do you send an app invitation to Facebook friends? This is the documentation, which actually goes down way longer about kind of like all the ins and outs, how to do it. And then someone just posted the question here, and they got a one-word answer, or like a one-sentence answer. Um, and I think a lot of people have started replacing documentation with Stack Overflow. I'm not sure how many of you, you know, use Stack Overflow. I think a lot of you probably are writing documentation from what I've heard from talking to people, a lot of it's internal, so maybe not Stack Overflow. Um, but Stack Overflow is really kind of taken over for documentation um, because people just Google it. If they can't find it, they will ask the question, someone will answer it, and then the next person to Google it can find it. Um, and I actually think that's a good thing. Uh, it's not the best thing possible, but there's something really nice about you know, having a specific question and getting an answer, as opposed to having to read through all this, because people have short attention spans. Um, and when you're building a website, when you're building a project, you aren't using just one API. I won't come back to that in a second. Um, but you're using 8, 10, 20 of them. Um, so some people, if you're a consultant for a company, you know an API really, really well, and you do want to understand all this documentation. But for a lot of people, it's something they work on for a week, and then they move on and never think about it again. And uh, it's the nice thing about kind of Stack Overflow is that it makes it really easy to just get in and get out without having to actually like learn something. Uh, that sounds bad. Could you describe this a little bit? Sure. I know I was familiar with the word Stack Overflow. Yeah, sure. The way you're using it. So sure. Yeah, so Stack Overflow is obviously a concept in computing. That has nothing yeah, to do with it. Yeah. What Stack Overflow actually is, I'm sorry, I should have described that. Um, it's a website, stackoverflow.com, and it's basically just a gigantic form where you can ask a question about anything uh, related to tech, and people will answer it. So it's kind of like a Yahoo Answers type thing, but specifically for tech, uh, specifically for API, specifically if I was writing something in PHP um, or Python and I got stuck and I couldn't find the answer anywhere, I would go to Stack Overflow. Um, and it's, it's interesting because they give you know, points based on it, so people are experts in things. So they'll be an expert in Python because they've answered a lot, enough questions correctly and stuff like that. Um, but it's, the interesting thing is that it's, there's no you know, cohesion. There's no nothing. It's just a bunch of questions and answers. And you know, you'll, find, you'll, go, you'll end up on Stack Overflow if you run into a bug and you search for the error code. Very often, it's kind of the first or second result because someone else has asked and got an answer. Um, so why do docs need to be dynamic? Um, because they're not all ready for the most part. Um, and books have done a great job for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. 
Um, but I think a big reason is that it kind of reduces the cognitive load. Like I said before, a big problem is that we're getting to a point where people are kind of using mashups of smaller services, not one gigantic system that they buy into. Um, and the problem with that is that people have, you know, it's just a job or it's a hobby. And, you know, they have things like family and friends and stuff that they care more about than like understanding dozens of systems that come into play. And uh, having to learn an entire API or something like that, if it's your full-time job, great. But for most people, um, the average for websites, and I'm not sure if you guys really work with websites that much, but with websites, uh, it's just, the average is eight APIs, separate APIs are being used. And that's just a lot to understand when that's not your thing. It's just kind of like um, part of your job. Um, you have to you know, understand it, implement it, maintain it. Um, so the point is that by kind of reducing the cognitive load and just, you know, when someone shows up at a website and just tells you the answer, it's a lot less work to have to integrate it. Um, for me, and this is very API-centric, uh, but the current thing I hate is authentication because it's ubiquitous, um, but it's all so subtly different. And that's kind of been like the biggest thing where every single, pretty much every, we have five or 6,000 uh, API hubs set up uh, with documentation, and pretty much every single one has at least a paragraph, probably three or four paragraphs about authentication, and it's all in very vague terms, like use your API key. Why can't you just tell me my, my API key? Or uh, you know, include it as the header, but it doesn't say use it every time, or sometimes use it every time. And it's all very different, and everyone has to slodge through, first they have to write it, and then everyone has to read three or four paragraphs. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, um, because it says things in general terms like, you know, go get your API key and uh, insert it as a header. It makes a lot more sense to me to just actually know their API key, because it's, the website. it's a website, we should know their API key and we should be able to generate kind of code samples. And I'll show you examples of that in a second. Um, so that kind of brings us to level two. Um, so level one was obviously kind of static documentation, looks the same for everyone. Level two is kind of reactive. The point is we already know about the users um, in theory. Maybe we know a lot about the user, maybe we know almost nothing and we kind of learn from them, um, but we know something about our users and we can kind of start doing a decent job of that. Um, so here's some code samples from, these are actually both from README, but I'll show you kind of the before and after of it. Um, so this is what it kind of looks like in regular documentation. Uh, this is very API-centric. I know that you guys don't all do uh, APIs, but I'm sure, or there's probably equivalents to just about everything. But kind of, it's showing the language up here. There's a bunch of different languages you can change and swap out. Um, and then it has like key, and this is like your API key, so you have to go to your someplace to get your API key or whatever. Um, I was talking to Tom about like variables and stuff. Um, and this is kind of like the after. And there's two big differences. First is that Python selected. Uh, because in this case, we already know the user's using Python. Um, or, you know, whatever they happen to be using. Um, and the second is that their API key is actually kind of put in there already. And it's clickable and they can click in, like switch out an API key. And the difference between these two is it's very subtle. But you know, here you have to click something, copy it, paste it, and make some changes to it. And this, it just works. Uh, and that's such a subtle difference, but the amount of just headache it reduces from having to know where to find your API key, okay, I have to scroll up and find that, stuff like that, um, has been a huge time saver for people. Yes, I'm sorry. Of course. Oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> um, you can come closer or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, 
No, that's actually so the question. Yeah, so the question just for the recording is um, is what is the difference between uh, these two? Um, so the difference that's not actually a example. And that's the big problem is that a lot of documentation just puts an example in or something, and you don't know like what's an example or what's actually needed stuff like that. Um, so this is actually be you know John's API key or Tom, whoever happens to be looking at the website at that time. Um, and you can if you don't have an API key. It says click here to get your API key. You click it, and it pops up a little box where you can like put in your whatever you have to do to get it. Um, but the point is that code sample should be just copyable um, and pasteable, and it should just work as soon as you paste it. Um, and there's no kind of like trying to figure out. That's a big problem when you're writing documentation. When I'm reading it, I have a very hard time distinguishing. Okay, what's an example? What's a what actually needs to be included? Um, so things like why, that. Why did you switch from jQuery to Python? Sure. Uh, so the point was that kind of uh, rather than just selecting the first one automatically, knowing that the person is using Python, for example, or using Node, or uh, using uh, these are you know delimited by language, but there's other reasons why some people would want some things or other things or different code samples. Um, I'm not sure if you guys can think of any good examples other than this, um, but the point is just to kind of show. Does that mean you've got to write one of these slugs for for all the different. No. Uh, yep. So not with README. Uh, with README, since uh, you describe your API, uh, and APIs, once you know all the information about it, you can generate code. Um, with README, the code is generated for a bunch of common languages, um, and it knows your language. So let's say, uh, so as the person writing it, you describe the API, and then Tom comes along and wants to use it. Uh, sorry, I keep using your name, Tom. Uh, Tom comes along and wants to use it. He says, yeah, I'm writing it in Python, or I'm writing in jQuery. I just want to test it out. Um, and it automatically can generate the code snippets for you. Because if you have 100 APIs, you don't want to be writing a JavaScript, a Python, a Node. And I know this is very API-centric. I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm not sure how much you guys you know, work with documenting APIs. OK, now this little section here that's in yellow, yes. is that a piece of code that goes out and reads the guy's Sure. Um, so most APIs require an API key. Um, the point being that since it's a service where you're connecting to a server and coming back, uh, maybe they're charging for it. Maybe they just want to limit it. Maybe they just want to know who you are. Pretty much every API involves some sort of API key. Um, so for this, it, the act documentation will actually include the user's API key. And this is just an example of kind of a variable. Um, there's a lot of other things that we include, um, or you can include. Um, and since it's yellow, the reason it's yellow is because it's clickable. So if you mouse over or click it, it'll pop up a little modal, and you can like uh, select an API key or change. Because a lot of people using APIs have numerous accounts. Um, so it lets you kind of switch different API keys in and out. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to have to put it in every time for better security. Sure. Uh, so it depends. Uh, there are ways you don't have to. The, it's, we, make, we have a very clear warning that says, you know, are you sure that you want this to be displayed? Um, and that is definitely a good point. Because uh, API keys are kind of like passwords, um, because they let you do stuff. But people don't treat them quite like passwords. Um, so I completely agree with you. Uh, and there's different levels. You can either, uh, a lot of API keys, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's just to like, kind of just say who you are and doesn't really matter. It's not a password. It's just an API key. 
Um, sometimes it actually is a password, in which case uh, it's blotted out and you can either you know, show it by clicking it or you just have to know it yourself. Um, but the problem with API keys is they're not passwords because they're not something that you wrote down or came up with. They're just a random jumble of usually 32 characters. No one remembers them. Um, are, so are there's they, that. Uh, API keys, the way, with, the way API keys work with uh, uh, APIs tends to be they are semi-permanent, meaning that they stay for a while, but they're very easy to just reset. You just click one button and reset it in case it gets leaked or something like that. Um, but they don't time out? There's no time limit after which they're no longer valid? No, there's tokens which do that. Um, and so that'd be, they would be called like a token. And in that case, yeah, they do time out. And you probably wouldn't put that in the docs because they do time out, like you said. Uh, but no, API keys tend to be pretty permanent. Um, and uh, so, yeah, no, the security concern I definitely understand. But most of the time with APIs, it doesn't actually matter that much. Um, and all readme sites are uh, you know, served via SSL, so it sh shouldn't be that bad. Um, every single website already shows your API key someplace. They have to, some, because that's how you get it. Um, it's just showing it in the docs as opposed to on a separate website or a separate page. So that API key in yellow on the app. Yes. If I'm a user using your system, yep. is that API key that everyone is using my API? Yes, key? precisely. Okay. Um, it's the API key of whomever is looking at it. Um, and this is just a very small example. Um, I wanted to come up with the smallest example to kind of show kind of the difference between this could be printed on paper, whereas this is, knows a little bit about the user and brings in information. So it doesn't actually have to be an API key. It could be uh, the domain or something. Um, like it could change maybe the, the domain. It could change anything. Um, and we've got a bunch of different things that can like trigger changes and stuff like that. Um, but the point is that everyone looking at a readme documentation sees something different. Sometimes it's drastically different. Sometimes it's only slightly different. Um, to answer questions well enough, or? I don't want to. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would hate my night. Um, so this is a second example, and this is not on README. Um, this is on a site called Parse, um, parse.com, which you don't even know it does. That doesn't matter. But the point is, they used to have an onboarding like this. So the first time you ever went to use their stuff, it looked like this. It was gigantic. Well, text actually goes down way, way longer. Onboarding means? onboarding means the first time you use it. So you decide that I want to use this, and the first time you go to this page, uh, they used to send you this a long document. Okay. Yep, and it has a bunch of stuff. It has like an introduction. It tells like you know what it does. It tells you know it's how it's what browsers supports. It tells uh, what languages supports. Then it kind of goes into you know the philosophy behind it. Then what they do is they replaced it with this. And all it says, same exact information, but it just says install it. It just says copy and paste this. There's the API keys again that are just kind of like out in the open um, because it doesn't really matter. Um, and then it just says, okay, now copy and paste this and refresh and see if it works. And they kind of just, since they knew a bunch about the user, they were able to remove a ton of other stuff and put just this in. So this is not README, and I didn't want this talk to be about README. I kind of wanted it to be like different places uh, that I've seen documentation that I was like, wow, it's really cool. So the user, mm -hmm. as he's first logging on, he gets the screen. Yep. He, he copies those two sections. Yep. Refreshes. Yep. 
and then it takes that information mm -hmm. and gives him a pared down subset of what it would have shown him, right? Kind of. So this is like the pared down subset already because before this, the person said, you know, my name's Greg. Uh, I'm writing a application using uh, Java and uh, the application's name is this. Here's my credit card information. So we went through this process already. And then he lands on this page and uh, he sees kind of the subset that's specifically for his app. Okay. Whereas if I had said I'm using Python or I'm using uh, something else, it would be completely different. It would look different. It would have different stuff to copy and paste. Um, so then it goes on from there. So you do this, and this is actually, this is code um, that will run the first time you run it, but it's also meant to be very obvious how to tweak it and stuff like that. So what you do is you hit, on this you hit test, and it's like, nope, no data yet. Um, and it can check to see if it's working. And it actually debugs it in real time, which is really cool. Um, it'll say it's not, if you know, it'll say it's not connected for this reason, or you're using the wrong API key, or stuff like that. So the point of that is that this documentation is actually like listening to the, the code and like responding to it right away. Um, so this does not nullify needing good documentation, but the point is it just makes the first run experience a little more user friendly. Um, I, I'm, I'm really sure. confused here about the context. Mm -hmm. that's different from what's already there. I mean, yep. I go to uh, Amazon, say, or whatever, yep. and I see an API documentation. Yep. And are, are you doing something to that to make that simpler? Is mm -hmm. that what you're doing? Sure. So the point of kind of this talk is not really talk about my stuff. I don't want to talk about README, um, only because I care more about documentation than like my own stuff. Um, so that's kind of a non-answer to your question. So what, what, with respect to documentation, sure. Sure. Um, so the point is that we don't need to give long lists. Uh, the first time someone comes to you, some documentation or whatever, uh, it's kind of nice to show, rather than showing just a gigantic you know, list of text, which is very important, and someone eventually is going to need to come and see this information, we can kind of use the information we know about them to show um, and just give them something very easy to copy and paste well, right away. suggested things that mm -hmm. the person with that long list Mm -hmm. differently to make it more easy yep. for me when I go there? This is the first time you... customized to that person. Yeah, and this is the first time you use it. Yeah. Personalized. So this is the first, this is the first time you use it. Is the only way to do this mm -hmm. writing an API? No, no. Um, so we have a lot of open source projects that are written in every language imaginable using README and stuff. Um, and they also have first run stuff. Mm -hmm. XML, mm -hmm. how would we make something reactive? Sure. I don't know. Uh, that's, uh, I don't, I was trying to stay away from talking about the tooling just because um, I don't know. I guess the point is kind of that, uh, you know, I was talking to Tom, sorry, I threw into the bus again. We we're saying that like Dita and stuff like that, they generate static text. Um, and whether it's going to be my company or a hopefully open source project or something, um, kind of the point is I really want to see more tooling for documentation that takes into account that not everyone is the same. Um, so Dita doesn't have to output static HTML. It does right now, uh, but just as easily could output something that can dynamically respond to the user, because all the information is there. Um, it's just kind of displaying it in a slightly different way. 
Now with Ditto. Um, and again, I don't want to, I talked a little bit about my tool, but I don't want to like seem like I'm pitching because it's not something that any of you can use, I don't think. Uh, I talked to Tom about like all the shortcomings of it. Oh God, you're going to make me do that? <laughs> I can, <laughs> I can do that, but. So I think, no, I agree. Yeah, so I think. Yes, and so I think I think yeah I think that's a good point. That, that my point is I try to get skirt around the issue is that I think that I wish this could be more of a you know download this program and do it. But you guys are here on a Monday night talking about docs. Like you guys are the ones who care about it, and I think that kind of tooling is not great yet um, because you can't do stuff like this. And this is more of an argument why the tooling should be there eventually rather than a kind of tutorial on how to do it because. There is no way to do it right now, unfortunately. Yes. I just had one quick question. Now, the guy has already provided some information before he gets his screen. Yes. Mm -hmm. he's, somewhere, yep. he's gone somewhere yep. else. Then he gets this. Yep. And then he does that. Yes, precisely. So this is a subset of something. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a page before this where you type in kind of, uh, you know, I typed in test app as the name of my program. I typed in, you know, my name, my credit card, stuff like that before him. Anyway, that, so this didn't select or populate automatically. It, yeah. So yeah, it doesn't, you have to fill in a little bit of information, um, but then it can also detect a little bit from different places as well. Um, and then, yes. So what yes. your presentation is about is mm -hmm. this is what tools would look like if we had the right tools? Yes. So I should have done a better job of uh, <laughs> prefacing, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, the point this is. This is where we ought to be going. Yeah. You so, would like this. So just to go back a little bit, precisely. So to go back a little bit, we're kind of here. Oh, not here. Um, where was it? Oh, God. Yeah, give me, give me 10 minutes. OK, here we go. So I think this is where we are right now. And this is, you know, you guys already know the tooling for this, to create documentation that could be printed out and put in a book. And kind of, yeah, exactly. I wanted to show examples of kind of more forward-thinking documentation, because um, I don't want to talk too much about my company, but more about the, I've looked at dozens and dozens of documentation sites, um, hundreds, just to kind of see what was out there. And I was really disappointed in a lot of it. So I kind of wanted to highlight um, some of the more exciting uh, examples out there to kind of show where we should be today or in a year or two years or five years um, and kind of get people thinking about it. I yes. just want to make one other comment. I just finished reading uh, uh, Walter Isaacson's um, Innovator. And I just want to say there's a long tradition to what he's doing. A lot of people that did the innovations, some of them wrote key manuscripts about what the internet was going to look like 50 years before it got there. <laughs> hopefully not 50 and, years, but yeah, yes. Hopefully not, hopefully not. But but coming up with a vision of saying, boy, it would really be nice mm -hmm. if somebody developed the tools that would do this is a really important part of the development. Of the yes, and I'm sorry, I did a really bad job of uh, kind of uh, giving context behind where I was going with all this, so. I have a question. Why mm -hmm. 
So I don't have. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think tools currently can do not maybe not exactly this. And I'm also talking a lot about APIs. Um, unfortunately, I'm sorry that my talk's a little more skewed that way. Um, and that's my fault. I probably should have come to one of these beforehand. But uh, <laughs> there, are people, there are people here who actually do API. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so yeah, it is a little skewed towards APIs, unfortunately. Um, and. Uh, but um, that's mainly because that's what a lot of that's where documentation that's where a lot of the tooling is kind of going. Um, you know, we were talking I was talking to Richard about how it goes back and forth, and you know, back in the '70s it was very open source esque. Then we kind of got into like the Microsoft era where everything was very closed sourced. Then we got into the open source era again, and now we're getting a bunch of startups. And it won't be a monolithic thing like Microsoft, I don't think, but there's going to be a lot of like little services here and there that kind of provide stuff that needs to be documented. So, are there are there specific websites we could go to to see documentation that looks as if it were produced by tools like this? Sure, um, I can give you. I can send out uh, to someone. Yeah, send it to me. Yep, I'll send uh, a, like a list of like cool uh, places to go, kind of check out uh, documentation that is good. Um, and not that not that documentation stack documentation is bad, but kind of like uh, show you documentation of like companies that are a little more forward thinking, as far as making and most of the stuff I'm showing you right now, but forward thinking and making documentation a little more reactive. Um, okay, so here's another example. This is more for errors. So this is where um, a big reason why people go to documentation is errors, uh, because they're using it as something they run to an error and they're like, I don't know. This is very web-centric, just for just because that's kind of my space and what I understand. Um, but this is a doesn't matter what it is, but it's a programming language called Angular, and this is an error. It's very ugly, but because uh, that's the way it has to look, because it's that's the way the language outputs it. But uh, at the bottom right here, there's a URL. So you click that URL, and you look at all this. You have no clue what's going. You click that URL, and it brings you to a website, which is kind of interesting, because it's got a bunch of text like you would expect on a page that kind of documents some sort of error use case. But if you look, it also has the stuff that's circled is my stuff. It's got you know my name. It's got the variable that I couldn't find, and it's got the stack trace. And the interesting thing about that is that everything below it is very generic. It's very much here's what the error means, here's how to fix it, stuff like that. But they pepper in variables from my stuff. So rather than saying the variable is missing, it actually says the variable state provider was missing on line 14. So the documentation uses variables directly from the stack trace and stuff like that, which makes it a lot easier to read. Because no longer do you have to read through it, and it's kind of like you know, reading a legal document where you're trying to, in your head, everything you read, trying to figure out what that means. Uh, it's very hard to read something that says, OK, the variable that was undefined uh, needs to be blah, blah, blah. Uh, but if it says the variable is undefined, comma, you know, state provider, comma, needs, it makes it very much easier to figure out and keep track of like what variables which and stuff like that. Um, so this has actually been one of my favorite uh, Examples of like documentation that kind of like really morphs because it knows a lot about you without having you to put in, without you having to put information in. And now I never signed up for this documentation. I never gave them any information whatsoever. They just automatically generated a link that uh, went out and uh, you know gave me documentation that was tailored exactly to the error I was having. So this this is part of standard Angular JS distribution. Yes. Um, so if you go to the Angular docs um, or use Angular, it 
just works seamlessly. Um, and the nice thing is there's no signing up. There's no, I didn't have to know where to go. I got an error. It sent me, gave me a URL. I clicked the URL and it started to fill out parts of the text to make it relevant to me. Um, and static documentation would be just, almost just as good. Like it wasn't, it wouldn't be like, it's so life-changing that I wouldn't have been able to figure out the error without this. But having actually, the, having the documentation itself say, you know, go to line 32 and change this, that's really kind of cool. Um, do they? They tell you exactly what line in the XML code is wrong, and mm -hmm. it tells you what it'll expect. Mm -hmm. it doesn't, too. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I have to look in the console. Yep. It tells you that as well and says, you know, line 32. And everyone's used to that because pretty much every language kind of says, you know, line 32 and it's got a little bit of text here. Um, but the difference is that this is actual, like, lots of documentation on how to fix it and stuff like that. So it doesn't just tell you where the error is. It has how to fix it. It has, you know, the reason it does this. And mixed in is kind of your personal information. Um, so it kind of takes that information out of your stack trace. Precisely. It merges it with its, its boilerplate. Exactly, exactly. It gives you a uh, thing. So there's really nothing too exciting about the documentation other than it's got some variable replacement that's, um, that can leverage the stack trace, precisely. Um, this is another quick example, um, but this, is, this documentation actually, this is a Stripe, which does payments. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of them. But they were one of the first startups to actually invest a ton of money and time into documentation. And they've kind of started with startups, a little bit of a revolution into, um, into doing good documentation. And one thing that they are famous for doing is they have example responses, which most documentation has example responses. But you'll see that this, doc, this example response is actually a real response um, that I got most recently. So it shows the most recent response right in the documentation. So think about it this way. Let's say I make a call and it's not working, so I have to go to the documentation to see, you know, why it's not working. Rather than showing me an example response that could be, you know, just generic, it shows me my example response, which is probably the reason I'm on this documentation to begin with. Um, and it kind of like annotates it and shows me why maybe it's not working or why it is working or, you know, what I would need to tweak. But the fact is, it's not stack documentation. The static the documentation knows what's going on with the code that's being run. Um, so is the left side static? Left side is static, right side is my stuff. If I was not logged in, it would show generic stuff on the right side, but since I am logged in, it shows both. Um, so this is with APIs, but you can do that with code as well, where you know, if the code throws a stack trace or something like that, there's no reason the documentation can't or shouldn't know uh, what just happened and kind of start to conform a little bit to it. Yeah, stripe.com, yep. Um, and then, so that's kind of like a lot of companies are starting to do that type of stuff. Um, but then I think there's one more kind of level, which is kind of like proactive. And it's the exact same premise, except, that was cheesy, even more. Um, so I'm kind of, this is kind of the concept, and there's no one really doing this yet. Um, so this is really upsetting because there's no place to do this at all. But uh, it's kind of being a little more proactive and reaching out to people before there's a problem. Um, so no longer are things kind of siloed. We have the internet, everything's connected. It's very easy to know what parts of APIs, what parts of code people are actually using from various reasons. Um, 
you know, everyone's code's on uh, GitHub or in some sort of version control. So the code exists. So you can see exactly what part of the project people are using. Um, so maybe you're using, you know, one part of the project, you're using another, um, or using different, like, functions or something like that. Um, it's rather than kind of if there's an issue, if you're changing something, it should be very easy to figure out who's using what and reach out to those individuals specifically without having to tell everyone. Um, the point being that if you have thousands of users, you don't need to tell everyone that you're changing something. You can just tell people, tell just the people using it. Um, I think that's we're ways off from that, but that's kind of interesting to me as well, where um, we can be very much, we can actually push documentation on people before things break. Um, so I won't go too much from that because this is actually very API heavy. Um, so I'll skip over that. So that's basically the general concept behind kind of like the shift that uh, we're starting to see in documentation at startups and kind of like wishful thinking of where it would be great if documentation was more like that in a year or two. Um, unfortunately, as far as the tooling, uh, I'm doing my best, but clearly my use case is not going to help everyone's use case. I'm very API centric. Um, but I think that all documentation kind of know a little bit more about the user and conform a little bit. Um, so the first time people go to documentation, it should know enough about them to get them started. And then when they need to start doing deeper dives into errors, into uh, reference material and stuff like that, it should know enough about them to kind of surface the stuff they need, uh, tweak it, shift it around a little bit to show them the correct language or the correct uh, environment or the correct whatever else. Um, other examples are, you know, uh, I was using languages like programming languages, but another big use has been um, what kind of operating system they have. So documentation is different based on uh, you know, Linux compared to something more Unix-based, compared to something that's uh, Windows-based, and the documentation changes based on that. Um, that's another way that people uh, kind of have multiple types of documentation that knows what the user's using, auto-detects what they're using, and kind of changes the documentation to target um, the, the end user. Um, so I'm sure you guys have a bunch of questions. Oh, sorry. Go for it. It seems like you have to have a, a written an awful lot of code to support this. Yeah. Uh, how do you decide what languages you're going to support and things like that? Sure. Um, so in the context of README, and again, I don't want to make this too much about my company, but uh, we don't ask you to write kind of a JavaScript or a Python or a Java code snippets. We ask you to describe your API. And then we can generate the code samples for you. Um, and the interesting thing about that is you don't have to write, let's say you have 50 API endpoints. So that's 50 right there. But then you add, you want to support 15 or 10 or five different languages. That adds up really quickly because uh, you're just multiplying. And then let's say you make one change to something, all of a sudden you have to go through and redo everything. That seems miserable. Um, so a big part of that is actually, and this is something that I'm sure um, most software can kind of handle already, is generating different stuff based on, you know, knowing about the API, knowing about the code library, stuff like that. Um, with things like operating systems, there's only three main ones that people really use. Maybe, you know, OS, or maybe like the two mobile browsers, or two mobile um, OSs as well. But that's usually not that bad. Um, and most times, people have just kind of been writing it themselves, um, as far as like that. Uh, that is the biggest problem with kind of doing a little more dynamic uh, look at it. And that's why tooling is so important, because you can't be expected to, to, to maintain all this stuff. Um, so, so you're asking people to, sh to give you a description of their mm -hmm. API in a language-independent way. So mm -hmm. how, do you, how do they do that? Sure. Uh, 
Can we look at your, like, oh, we should see oh, yeah. your site? Can you sure. Uh, where is, do you mind if I use your browser? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to just start going through your computer. Perfect. Well, then that's, yeah, this will be more concrete then. We'll go through this quickly. Sure. Yeah, so it's uh, free for most things. Um, and then if you want some like really advanced customization, it's uh, 60. And then if you want really advanced stuff, it's more. But I mean, just get Oracle, you said. So the base is uh, 5,000 a month. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, most people are fine with just free. Uh, if you are a bigger company, you probably want more. Um, but. Oh yeah, the owl kind of. Get people nervous? Oh, I like that. It expires in 15 seconds. Yes. Um, and I'll. Yes, I'll show you the login. I'll show you the login page as well. So this is everyone's favorite. This is the login page. So you type in your, oops, you type in your email, and then you type in uh, the password, and the owl covers his eyes. Um, so the best thing about the owl is that people really tend to have kind of an adversarial relationship with documentation. And just having something friendly has been amazing. Like so many people, Gabe will tell you because he handles all like the talking to people and stuff. But like people just really like it looks more friendly and feels more friendly. And like, you guys have all seen uh, how lots of docu generated documentation looks. And just it's ugly. And the information is all there, and that's great. But you kind of want we found that it really helps to be a little more friendly um, and stuff like that. So if this ever loads, I'll show you a little bit more. Yeah, like the, the clippy thing is so easy. Yeah. No, don't worry. The owl doesn't pop up and be like, you should do this. It just stays out of your way. Oh, it kind of does. You'll see. But, uh, <laughs> I swear my site's not this slow. It's just the internet here. Um, so the owl does pop up a little bit here and there. And that's a little clippy-esque. Don't throw stuff at me. Um, but yeah. So to, I think the question, the reason we got into this was how do you describe your API? Um, we're using a format called API doc, which is embedded right in the code. Nope, that is not right at all. Yeah, I thought it was .org. Nope, I guess it's .com. Um, so it looks a little bit like this. Um, so you would describe it kind of like this right in your code. And uh, I know this is probably not great for kind of bigger projects, but for smaller projects, most APIs, or code libraries don't have that many functions or endpoints to document under fewer than 20. And keeping it in the code um, means that the developer kind of controls this part of it. Not everything, but this part. And I'll show you kind of the distinction in a second. So this is like java.com? It's exactly just like javadoc, but this is specifically for APIs. But something like javadoc comments, things like that. So the reason this is controlled by the developer is because it makes a lot of sense to have a very tightly coupled with the code. Because there's very few situations where the developer will change something and won't want to update the docs. Um, 
But as you can tell, you don't want the developer to control the entire process uh, because so the there's. Proactive tool would see that the developer changed the code and changed the document. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there eventually someday. Um, <laughs> uh, so you would do that and you would import it um, and it would keep it synced with the code. Um, so I can't really show you that part, but I can show you kind of below it is this is the this is how you write it. Um, this is not Dita, as I'm sure you've all noticed. It's not anything like that. It's probably not nearly as good or as flexible. Um, but the goal is that it's hopefully simple because the point is I really want people who hate documentation to start documenting. Um, my target market is to try to get people who hate documentation a little more kind of on your side, um, not necessarily to kind of like bring you guys down to our very basic level where it's just markdown and stuff like that. Um, which is kind of why I didn't want to get too much into showing my stuff because, like you guys said, you are not my audience <laughs> per se. Um, I'm trying to get people to, to, to understand how important documentation is. Um, so it's basically, you've got a bunch of different things um, to create code samples, to create uh, you know, uh, images, uh, you can do like callouts and stuff. Um, and it makes it very easy to create, in theory, beautiful documentation. Because as superficial as it is, people like things that are pretty more than they like, you know, something that's just ugly and painful looking. So everything outside of those little widgets is markdown friendly syntax. Yep. So I don't know if you guys all know markdown, but markdown is um, it's a syntax that's kind of like this. So this is making it bold and uses stars. It's very readable. The point of markdown is if markdown is markdown should be readable, just as readable when parsed as when not parsed. Um, and obviously, it's not the prettiest thing to look at before it's parsed, but it's pretty, um, pretty readable, and it's pretty understandable what's going on. And when you have a table, you can just drag that instead of using markdown syntax? Yep, table. you can use either. You can either uh, drag in a table like this, um, or you can use markdown. Um, and then there's some really stupid stuff that you guys will all uh, hate, but like there's, uh, you know, like little icons you can put in all over. Um, so this is the owl one. Um, but more importantly would be stuff like like warning, which makes it really easy to kind of uh, very quickly create something that in theory looks pretty nice. And you guys saw me sign up for this. In theory looks really nice and is hopefully really easy to, to, to create. Um, someone, a, you know, a new person coming to the docs can hit suggest edits. Uh, if they log in, they can do the um, same exact thing. They have the same editor. They can make changes. It doesn't show up right away, but it kind of, if there's a typo or if there's something else. And the nice part about that is you still have control here, the person who owns the documentation. They still have most of the control. But the nice thing about suggested edits is uh, you guys are going to be better than most because you are trained to actually think through it step by step. Most people aren't. Uh, I was talking about like as a, I'm sure I think half I heard like about half of you were developers at one point. Developers are so bad documenting their own code because, and that's why technical writers are so important because developers are so bad at taking themselves out and thinking about it objectively, and they just forget all these things that are obvious to them but aren't obvious to yeah. people. Um, so that's kind of where Combison's just said it's come in. Ah, yeah, so the API Explorer is kind of interesting. Thanks, Gabe. We'll get away from the editor more into like what 
it could potentially look like if you invested a little more time. And the goal is with this is to get it so that in under an hour, you can have really good documentation for your API, your code library, something else. Um, so this is a more advanced example that's been kind of uh, done already. You'll see that each one looks like the company um, or the project um, because we didn't want to kind of do the GitHub thing where it's the GitHub logo. We want to kind of look and feel like whatever company you happen to be uh, working for or working with. This is taking a bit too So if you wanted, you could go up to Twitter mm -hmm. and apply your, your thing to the Twitter API and Not looks, it would look, but it would look like Twitter's API as opposed to looking uh, more generic. So it would be like a blue top and have like the Twitter logo up top. Um, so this is another example of an API. Um, another thing that I didn't really mention is search. There's really good search that kind of uh, spans question and answers, documentation. The point being that it favors documentation. And if there's documentation that answers the question that you type in the search box, it'll go there. But if not, it'll show an answer, question and answer. It'll show error code, stuff like that. Um, so your API browser, that requires that somebody has annotated the code with the kind of uh, descriptions that you're talking about? Uh, say, I'm sorry, say that one more time. That was my fault. Your, um, in order for the, the API browser to work, you have to have that API docs syntax in the, in the source code? Not necessarily. You can also do it manually. Um, there's a manual editor. I can show you that right now. Uh, you can do it manually. So if you don't want in the code, uh, it would look something like this for APIs. There's a different interface if you're doing a like functions or something like that or methods. Um, but you type a little information. You can type parameters, some code samples, things like that. Um, and then there's more advanced settings here. And the more advanced settings lets you do things like include headers, uh, things like that. Uh, describe how the authentication works. So we'll say like, okay, it's a query parameter, for example, which is a API-centric thing. But the point is, we're describing this in you know, metadata. And then rather than kind of, it'll tell you how to do it, but it also shows you how to do it. And that's kind of like the big difference is rather than telling, also showing. Because again, we're kind of coming from different angles where you guys are actually writing documentation for people who care. Um, I'm kind of helping people write documentation for people who only want to think about it for 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Um, because things are becoming very much more modular, I think, uh, much like kind of like the Unix philosophy of there's no monolithic thing. It's just uh, more split up. And uh, most of the projects using README are have that mindset that they're doing one thing and doing it really well. And that's great. But the problem is that you're stuck learning 50 different things or 20 different things to accomplish what you could learn if you were buying into a Microsoft system that did everything. Um, so let's see if this is working. So if you enter your, your API information mm -hmm. into Yep, so I'll, I'll show that right now. So you see right here, this is like the try it out. So it asks for an ID, which could, in this case, could be anything. Um, and it wasn't found because it's not a real API. Oops. But uh, it lets you actually, it lets people actually inline play around with the code or play around with the API. Um, so no longer does it say, okay, read this and then go do it yourself. Uh, it says, okay, fill out this information, hit try it, and then we'll tell you, you know, what happens. We'll tell you the response headers. We'll tell you everything like that. Um, so the point is we want to have like a little bit of a playground right inside the documentation as well. And this doesn't translate to every type of code. Obviously, you can't really have a playground uh, for you know, a gigantic Java program or something like that. But for stuff that's a little more easy, whether it be kind of JavaScript or just a little Python script or APIs, uh, we want to make it so that 
it's, it's very much showing rather than telling. And you can actually play around with it. You can change the variable and see, like, does that fix it? Uh, it doesn't fix it. And then at the end, once you're done playing around with it, we want you to be able to just copy and paste a snippet, the snippet of code that you, you created by clicking things and changing around. Um, I think a big difference, and I was talking to Tom briefly about this, I think it was you, um, but a big difference that I'm starting to see is that a lot of people who aren't computer scientists are starting to want to use code libraries or use APIs um, because the web shouldn't be just for the web or you know, programming shouldn't just be for tech people. It helps everyone. It helps, you know, let's say some guy is a financial analyst. It's amazing how much programming can help him do his job and stuff like that. And I think we're starting to see a lot of people who have never taken a computer science class in their life wanting to use a project from GitHub or use an API from some random company or whatever. And I think that that's who we're kind of targeting for the end users of the documentation is people who, and this is where, this is where it might, for some of you it might be relevant, but for some of you it might not be, but um, we're targeting people who don't have computer science degrees. And that's kind of the mindset is building something that makes it easy to create for the person who created the API, but even easier for the person consuming it to not have to know anything. Um, not, no, not know anything, but to be able to just kind of copy and paste or uh, tweak or play around with until they get the results they want. Um, I don't know for sure, but I think that in 10 years, computer science will still be a degree, of course. I'm not denying that, but I think that um, it's not going to be like stuck in Silicon Valley where all the tech is. It's going to be just so integrated with financial stuff, with uh, you know different industries that there won't really be a tech industry. Uh, there'll be a you know tech subset of the health industry and things like that. Um, and that's kind of where we're targeting. We're targeting people who, the end end user, we want them to be able to use the thing that's being documented with absolutely no programming knowledge. You need a little programming knowledge, of course, but with as minimal programming language knowledge as possible. Um, I've kind of started rambling and I've gone off topic and stuff. Is there anything you guys wanted to see? Or? So, oh, yeah, sorry. So I've seen similar sites that, that have this interactive mm -hmm. experience, like mm -hmm. Swagger yep. or, or Yep. Um, but they don't really have the ability to include my other tutorial documentation. Mm -hmm. So you've got the ability to combine them, it looks like, and you have a search that looks across them both. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, so uh, a big thing about documentation is, like um, we said before, it's very modular. So there's the there's maybe a main site, a marketing site, then there's the the topical guides that are one place, the tutorials that are one place, another place is the the reference guide. Um, that's probably gonna all be static. Then there's gonna be a maybe I don't know if you guys have this, probably not for internal stuff, but like a form or question answer or some place where people can kind of ask questions and interact. And the goal of this, of README, is to take each of those little things, which are all done really well already, and bring them under one roof where it all works really well together. So the point is no longer is the top of the guy going to be in one section, the support, the errors can be someplace else, the support can be someplace else, and then the demo, like uh, Tom said, which is, this already exists. Nothing I've done so far has been you know, mind-blowingly innovative at all. The beauty comes from combining them all so they work really well together. Um, and then, I'm not even close to where I want to be, which is why I'm almost a little embarrassed to show this because I really want to be in a place where like the code samples are combined with the edit with the try it out thing. So like you can actually like change a variable right in the code and hit go and see the results and stuff like that. And that's where I want to be eventually, where it's even more kind of uh, homogenous and like together. Um, and that's why I think we kind of need new tooling because tooling currently 
does what it does really well, but it does it separately in different silos. And I think there's a lot of awesomeness that can come from the community being involved right in the documentation. Again, community means different things. Maybe the community for your documentation is two people. Maybe the community is 10,000. You have a question, or is no. okay? <laughs> Sorry to call you out. So have, have you have you looked at the Dexi approach? No, I've not actually. Uh -huh, because they. Um, D -E -X -I? What you're talking about is, is embedding documentation in the code, mm -hmm. where, whereas what uh, she does is uh, embed code in the documentation. Yes. And uh, I was wondering if how you contrast those, or if there's some uh, some marriage of those things that might actually be. Uh, sure. Uh, I am not familiar with it. I will do that as soon as I get home tonight because that sounds very interesting. Um, but to kind of build on that, not knowing about that, um, and this is where my utter lack of knowledge um, for technical writing comes in, unfortunately. Um, the goal is to kind of just merge them all for me as much as possible um, in ways that make sense. Um, and that's very vague, and I don't really have any more thoughts on that, unfortunately. But I will uh, read up on that and get back to you on it. Awesome. Um, I will look at this, and I guess all of you will as well. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot more tooling that is coming out around kind of, and people are doing it very differently. Um, there's, it's, the thing I don't like about most of them, though, is that a lot of the cool new tech is trying to completely remove text and reference guides and just show examples and stuff. And like, I think there's, I think you need everything. It just needs to work well together. Um, and I don't, we, I've been, we've been launched for three months and we're not even close to solving the, any of the problems that I mentioned here, which is why I use a lot of like examples from other sites rather than mine, which is why I was kind of hesitant to talk about mine. Um, this kind of talk came from, um, Write the Docs asked me to talk about, uh, um, kind of like where, because I've been doing a lot of research on documentation, the state of it, and they just asked me to kind of like give a quick demo of like the coolest docs that I could find. And that's kind of where this talk kind of stemmed from. And were you there, Tom? Or, okay, Tom was there. So Tom got to listen to it twice. Sorry. No, this is. You can, this start, is you can start giving it for me now. Do you want to start going to places and giving the talk for me? Or? <laughs> At your other talk, you didn't even demo read me. I know. I, was, I try really hard not to. Gabe's gonna Gabe's gonna throw stuff at me later for like almost barely almost missing out on demoing it. I'm sure, but technical writers is often that we don't have the tool set that we want that we need in order to do some of the cool stuff because we're not engineers for the most part. Yeah, but this doesn't sound like a tool set that we use directly unless we're going to be messing with the source code. Sort of. With Java Docs, you you do yeah. Well, with Java Docs, you do that, and we should be. Yeah. So you don't. Yeah, you don't. You don't need to touch source code, but. What are we, what, what are we talking about? The, are we talking about JavaScript? No, what source code option. are we talking about? Doesn't matter. You can import the stuff. You can import the source in here if it's got those API doc tags, or you just write it from scratch in here manually, without having. I mean, drag it, save a little over, put your parameters right after. Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about uh, doing it automatically sync from. Uh, so again, I fully admit that I'm coming from a slightly different world where. Uh, currently, right now, the developer is in charge of doing all the documentation. Um, and I don't think that's right for a few reasons. 
one, because doc developers are bad documenting their own code. They're very good at doing like the reference stuff because they know exactly what's going on. Um, but they're very bad at documenting their own code, and they're also bad at doing marketing. They're very bad at kind of like telling people why they should be using it and stuff like that. And that's why I kind of wanted to vary. That's why I have it so it's in the source because it kind of makes it very clear who does what. Um, and maybe you guys might disagree on where the line's drawn, but I've kind of drawn the line at reference stuff is kind of done by the developer, the very basic, basic, basic stuff. And then the more important stuff, how to use it, uh, what each parameter actually means, things like that, that's done in this interface, which is could be done by the developer, but in theory would hopefully be done by a product manager or someone actually who is a technical writer, things like that. Um, so that's, uh, we'll see how that line goes, but yes. Yeah. The, although it was in a different uh, context, um, I just did a, real, uh, did a review on a book that was about a, a style guide for writers, mm -hmm. but he talked about the incomprehensible writing mm -hmm. coming from what he called the curse of knowledge, mm -hmm. which is the inability of the writer yep. to, or the expert, yep. pioneers or whoever, yep. to comprehend or appreciate the fact that the reader doesn't know everything he knows. Yep. And when you get to developers, they know so much. I feel like I did a good job proving that. It's absolutely obvious that, of course, it's this way and that way and the other way. Yep. And they don't understand the examples that yep. people need, the context yep. they need, the sequencing, yep. the, the need to craft. Yep. And I think I did a really good job of proving your point by not doing a good job of kind of messaging, you know, this and kind of assumed uh, different things. And it's very easy for anyone, developers or whatnot, to do that. Uh, one thing, so to talk about things I don't like about README, is that uh, right now it's kind of just a blank, do what you want, free for all. Like it's just a, you show up and it's a blank uh, text. And I think there's a lot uh, that can be gained by kind of guiding people and on how to write good documentation, which is why I've started going to meetups and that's how I started talk that's how I end up writing or talking at Write the Docs. I started by just going because I wanted to learn more about uh, what was out there and how people were going through it. Um, to kind of understand how how to write good documentation myself so then I could kind of like guide non-technical writers through the process of writing good documentation. Because it's not that people are incapable of it, it's that they're very bad at taking a step back and thinking, oh I should probably document all the different errors. Oh, I should probably take a step back and document, you know, this, this, and this. Um, and one thing that I want to get better at with README is I want to make it so that it does a better job of guiding you through what and reminding you what needs to be documented. Because, like I said, people do reference docs and think it's good enough and don't realize. Uh, I saw a joke on Twitter, which was, uh, you know. Uh, there's no such thing as an API that takes less time cons to consume than it does to build. Um, just the point being that it's easy to build an API, it's easy to build code, but it's very hard for people to consume it uh, just reading crappy documentation. So, yes. Well, you're a developer and you're suffering <laughs> yes. from the same problem, but if you were now going to step back and not be the developer, but mm -hmm. be the person who's documenting what your company is doing. Mm -hmm. um, what is the big picture? What mm -hmm. what if, what would people use your product for? Mm -hmm. What problem would they be trying to solve? Mm -hmm. uh, so the thing we kind of keep like uh, our mission statement or our goal is to kind of reduce the learning curve as much as possible. Um, the learn that means a lot of different things, but the point is uh, we want to make it so that rather than taking a day to learn a new API, we want it to take minutes, um, and we don't people have to think about it. The reason being that, like I said before, most people who consume APIs and consume code libraries now that use README, or 
the end users, they're not developers. They're just people who just want to use something and don't want to have to get a CS degree to you know, show their Facebook friends on their website or something like that. Um, so the, the thing that README offers is a few things. One, hopefully it looks nice. Um, that's, not a selling, that's not a huge, huge thing, but it does make things a little nicer. Um, but two, uh, hopefully kind of forces people to create and consume docs in a way that uh, is much easier than the way it currently is. And that's very broad. I, I realize I that. I'm still vague on mm -hmm. who does what here. Because I yep. suppose I'm writing a Ruby program. Sure. And I want to go up to Amazon to, get, uh, to give it an ISBN and get the book name yep. and put that in my program. Now, okay. where does your prompt thing fit into that? Sure. So Amazon would be the one paying us, or not paying us, but Amazon would be the one that would initiate using README. Uh, they would sign up for README, um, and they would document, um, they would put in the endpoints, connect with their code, it automatically suck in the endpoints, so it has all the endpoints. Uh, they would write some tutorials, they would kind of give a little information. So the end user would go to developer.amazon.com or whatever it happened to be. They would never know it's README. They would never have to like know what README is. Um, and what they would do is then they would say, okay, get started. And they would click, I want to get the ISBN. And they would click that and it would say, okay, you know, Richard, we know your name's Richard. We know that your API key is this. We know that you're writing a Python app because we already know all this information about you. Here's the code. And you just copy and paste that code. And that is in contrast to, you know, I don't, you guys have all probably seen the Amazon docs, and they're just a mess. Um, and all the information is there, but so is thousands of lines of information that you don't actually need. Um, I've gotten lost in this many times, and there's many even just, there's dozens of just websites that have documentation. And Amazon's definitely not our target customer, of course, because they do need lots more than the average startup. Um, but uh, the kind of goal of you know, where README comes in is uh, kind of hopefully trying to take all this information that Amazon already has, because they have to still come up with the information, but then distilling it in a way that the person who's writing a Ruby app can very easily consume it. Um, I realize that's very vague, and that means a lot of different things. Uh, some things are already kind of done. Some things are things that you know, we're working towards. Um, but that's kind of why I've been looking at a lot of documentation, because I want to see what's out there. I want to kind of start getting inspiration, seeing you know, what I really like and what I don't like, which is how this talk kind of came about. Um, and this talk is kind of a call for better tooling. Hopefully, README gets there. But like you said, this is not, README is probably something that you know, you'll never actually be able to use. But I think a lot of the concepts behind documentation being a little more flexible, a little more understanding of the end user, um, is going to be important in the upcoming years. Uh, so there's an interesting kind of case study that we use. Uh, there's two companies. One's called Stripe and one's called Braintree. They're both used for payments. They're the two big ones. And every single person uses Stripe. Very few people use Braintree. You'll probably see thousands of Braintree um, advertisements and stuff because they're desperate to get users. Um, but the difference is the documentation. The documentation for Braintree is very muddled and confusing, and the documentation for Stripe is perfect. And they're the exact same product, the exact same price, uh, no one should really care which one they're using. And documentation was a huge selling point for, that's never going to load. Uh, documentation has been a huge selling point for Stripe, though. And I've kind of used that as like the, the, the pitch, whether it's something they're actually making money off of, like a startup, or if it's just a code library they want people to use. Documentation really is the user interface uh, for, that's sitting between the end user and the person creating it. 
And that is why kind of more advanced tooling is really important, because the better and better the tooling is and the prettier it is, unfortunately, attractiveness is a huge part of this. Um, not because it actually matters if it's pretty or not, but it matters, uh, it just gives you that feeling of like, you know, this isn't that bad. You know, take a deep breath, it's prettier. So if you're looking at the Stripe documentation, yep. uh, is that at the proactive level or the intermediate sure. level? Sure. So I call it, yeah, I call it uh, passive, reactive, proactive. I would say it's more reactive. Um, and it's, it, they're very muddled categories. There's really, you know, a lot of it's passive, a lot of it could, 95% of the Stripe documentation could be printed out and handed to you on paper, and it would be just the same for everyone in this room. So, so mm -hmm. the reason it's better is mm -hmm. not necessarily that it's uh, proactive or reactive, yep. but that it's better written? I think that uh, it's everything. I think that it's better written. Um, I think that it looks nicer. It definitely looks prettier, which is an uh, important factor. Um, it conforms to the user. It knows about the user. Uh, it shows you your API key, so you can just copy and paste code right away without having to you know, configure stuff. It knows what language you're writing. It knows what operating system you're using. Uh, if there's an error, let's say, let's say I'm using Stripe and something messes up and I get an error code, and then I go to docs.stripe.com, it will actually be like, hey, Greg, we saw you have an error. Click this link to figure out how to fix it. And that's where it starts to get a little more pushing towards you, yeah. Um, and I know we all hate Clippy, but like there is something nice, if done right, about the computer kind of being a little more proactive and being like, you know, hey Richard, I saw you have an error. Here's how to fix it. You don't want to be jumping up and all that, but. Uh, hey Richard, I see you starting to write a suicide. <laughs> 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 That's the problem with Clippy and some of that stuff. Is that he guesses wrong. Exactly. <laughs> And it's, it's, they took the cuteness and it's a little annoying. So the owl is very much not all over. Um, and yeah, try, I'm trying not to be as cute like Clippy. But I think that Siri is a good example of something that does it a little bit better than Clippy, where it kind of like knows about the user and can kind of give you information. And uh, I mean, the entire web is built on kind of the Clippy mentality. It's just a little less obvious about it. Uh, I think the problem with Clippy was that it just sat in the corner, was a little annoying. Whereas if the software is a little more, if, you know, Word was a little more integrated and kind of, you know, was able to do it in a less obnoxious way, it would have been really helpful. Okay, anything else or? Uh, I have a question. Yes. Does this only work for REST APIs? No, uh, it just works best for REST APIs. Uh, it, just, uh, it just happens to work best for, it's, let me rephrase that. There's more tooling directed at RESTful APIs, but the goal is that it's good for anything. Uh, we have a ton of, I'd go to them, but the internet's a little slow here. Um, there's a ton of like open source projects in pretty much every language that it supports. Um, and there's a lot of uh, like the reference, it doesn't necessarily have to be RESTful API. It could be Java docs, it could be R docs, pretty much anything that can be documented. Uh, maybe not today, but in theory will be, uh, will support this. Um, but yeah, no, it's not just, it's not just RESTful APIs. We have a lot of people using it. We have some people using it for like travel planning and stuff that like you totally should not be using it for. Um, which is stupid and saying that they're using it, but um, the point is to make it as flexible as possible. Uh, but APIs are getting very, very important. Um, and honestly, I'm being 100% honest, the reason why we focus on APIs is because companies are the ones with money. And uh, I come from an open source background. Um, I care way more about like you know programming languages and open source stuff. But uh, you know we're kind of doing both and financing it with API stuff because that's. Uh, companies charge for the APIs, companies charge, companies also charge for code as well. Um, 
but you know the world that I'm used to, APIs are where the money is. So, so, so yeah. when you say REST APIs, do you really mean just HTTP based, or do you mean the whole fielding thing? Uh, so the currently more just like HTTP stuff, um, but it could it's flexible enough to do whatever. Um, and one thing that we're going to start doing soon is generating SDKs, so automatically generating Python code, Rails code that you can actually like install, Java code, et cetera, um, because it's just a lot to maintain. Um, and the documentation should not be that separate from the you know, SDKs and code. It should all kind of be just a, this sounds bad, but kind of a jumbled mess, but in a good way, where you no longer have to go three different places for the same information or for, to solve one problem. It should all just be right there for you. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for putting up with me. I know that I'm probably, uh, <laughs> I know I'm probably not the usual uh, fare that you guys are used to, but um, thanks so much for coming. Well, hopefully that was good then. <laughs> um, and I have learned so much from just talking to people beforehand that I'm overwhelmed in a bad way and a good way, so <laughs> there you go. Awesome.